0: The first week, we talked about John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And who is the Word? Jesus. right? John is making it very clear in that first verse that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was with God in the beginning. He continues on. That through him, all things were created, and everything that has been created was created through him. So not only was Jesus there, but Jesus was an active participant in the act of creation. And so that we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is God. And then last week, we talked about uh, continuing on in those first, really, five verses, that the word is in you and working in you through faith. And Pastor Corey gave some fantastic examples. Um, one of my favorite stories from the entire Bible is just the faith that the woman with the issue of blood had to come forward and to reach and to grab the hem of that tassel, knowing that everyone that she touched was going to be unclean and that she was defiling other people and, and that she was going to be scorned from the community. But to have the faith to reach up and grab the hem of that robe, I mean, it just, I find that so encouraging. But we're going to talk about that faith a little bit more today. I wanted to start out with reminding you all the purpose of the book of John. So at the very first week, Pastor Corey talked about this. This is John chapter 20, verse 31. It's at the very end of the book. But John actually gives us a purpose for writing this book. He said, but these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There is a purpose to this book. And as we see, we're going to uh, develop why did John write what he wrote in the way that he wrote it. Now, we're going to do things uh, the same we've been doing the last few weeks. So if I can have everybody stand for the reading of the word. Uh, We stand because though uh, grass may wither and fail, the word of the Lord stands forever. So we're going to read John 1, 6 through 18. We're going to read this together. And I want you guys to actually read this with me. So we'll go somewhat slow. A man came sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory. The glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified about him and shouted out, This one, one, the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I am, because he existed before me. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word. God, I thank you that you have given us your word so that we can study them and know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So these first 18 verses are a, a really beautiful poem that John wrote that essentially describes all of Christianity. It's what it means to be a Christian, right? If you think about these words and you listen to the things that were spoken, this defines who we are as Christians. But why did John start his book differently? Now, for those of you that aren't aware, John is not one of the synoptic Gospels. Everybody say synoptic Gospels. These are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the synoptic Gospels because they tell relatively the same story in the same way. All of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life, but the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story and they're very similar to each other. They have slightly different purposes, and they were written by different people with different perspectives, but they focus on the same areas of Jesus' life and ministry. John is very different. John was actually one of the last Gospels written. We're not exactly sure when it was written, but it was between 70 A.D. and 100 A.D., right? So John was written long after the others And this was by, most likely, uh, John, who was one of the followers of Jesus himself. There's a couple different other possibilities, but most of the evidence points to this being John the apostle, the follower of Christ. And so John was a leader in a church at this point in time and would have had time to hear how his stories of Jesus, of his encounters with Jesus and of Jesus' life and encounters with those around him had begun to develop and grow in the world. So, writing the book of John, he had a unique opportunity to correct some false teaching that had sprung up in the church. John, more than any other of the Gospels, focuses, like he says at the very end, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of the book of John. It's one of my favorite books because it so clearly points to Jesus being Christ. But this entire block of text that we just read, I don't know how you guys feel, but sometimes you can read the Bible, and I'll be reading through, and then I'm like, okay, I just read two pages, and what did I read? I have absolute okay, I got to go back. And then I read those two pages again, and I get to the end, I was like, wait a second, that wasn't any better. <laughs> right? Like, okay, let me read it out loud. And then maybe that helps a little bit. Right? And then maybe I'll go listen to it. You know, I love the Bible app where we can have, maybe I need a different narrator to read it to me. Like, I'm trying to focus here. Lord, why is this so hard? And some of it has to do, for me at least, with understanding. Right, John wrote these 18 verses actually to serve a very specific purpose. Now, the overall goal of the book is still the same. It's so that we all will believe and understand that Jesus is Christ. But he actually was combating some early heresies that had developed in the church. All right, The first one is called Mandaean Gnosticism. That's your $5 word of the day. So Mandaean Gnosticism was the belief that John the Baptist was actually the greatest of the prophets and the last prophet. This is a religion that still exists today. It's got about 100,000 members. They're usually in the Middle East. Most often, before uh, the early 2000s, they were actually in Iraq, centralized. And then after you know the war in Iraq and all that jazz, they kind of separated and went to a few different areas. Some went to Syria and to Lebanon. Of course, there's wars there. And so um, But they focus on their lineage. They trace themselves back to the original followers of John the Baptist, and they believe that they are all direct descendants of Shem. Right now, I remember doing JBQ when I was growing up, Junior Bible Quiz, and one of the very few things that I just remember always is what are the name of Noah's three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right. <laughs> so uh, they believe that they are direct descendants in the line of Shem, and that they follow from John's disciples. But they don't believe any of the Jewish teaching or Christian teaching. They have this uh, Gnostic side of them, which is, means knowing. It's the Greek for knowledge. And it's a very hidden knowledge kind of religion. So they believe that um, you know, the Holy Spirit, not what we would call the Holy Spirit, but it comes in the form of light. And so they heavily preach about the light coming. And they preach about John and how John was this prophet of the light. It's interesting. Because we just talked about the light and John. The second um, heresy is docetism. Everybody say docetism. This is traditional Gnosticism, right? This is the belief that Jesus was not a man because they believed that God could not become flesh. There's this term called Gnostic dualism, and it's the belief that who we are on the outside, all of this, this flesh, this stuff, is different than who we are on the inside. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Right? This is a heresy that we're still dealing with today in the form of transgenderism when they say that who I am on the outside needs to match who I am on the inside. But Jesus overrode this. He is fully God and fully man. And John talks about this says the word took on flesh. This was a pagan belief, right? They believed that eventually we would shed these mortal bodies and just be beings of pure spirit, right? Jesus wasn't human. He just kind of seemed like a human because flesh is evil and you got to get rid of it so that you can really be who you are on the inside. This is an early church heresy that's been around for longer than 2,000 years, and it's something that we're still struggling against today, but John knew that and wrote about it. The last one is adoptionism, and this is really popular. This is the belief that Jesus wasn't God at all. Uh, He was just a man, but then after some trials and the the hanging on the cross, God resurrected him into godhood, right? Now, this is uh, against uh, a Grecian heresy, right? You see this a lot of times. Uh, How many of you guys are familiar with the the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, the story of Hercules? right a man who becomes a god through trials and temptations but this is again a heresy that we see today in mormonism right the belief that jesus is god but it's not the the high god you know he was he became god and and so he wasn't there in the beginning he didn't fashion the world that's not what jesus did but again John is rebutting these just in these first 16 verses. And we see this again with Jehovah's Witness, which they just deny the deity of Jesus altogether. Yeah, he existed, he was a prophet, whatever, but not God. So I'm going to read these again. And I want you to listen to John specifically arguing against each one of these points. A man came sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Now the word became flesh. That's a very specific word there. The word flesh is not just The word became man or the word became human. It's flesh. It is physical. It is the aspect of humanity that we all share. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth who came from the Father. John testified about him and shouted out, this one is the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only one himself, God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. See, when you understand why John was writing, it makes a whole lot more sense At the very end, he's actually rebutting even some of the Judaizers who would tell that you have to become a Jew. You have to become circumcised. And, you know, we just talked a lot about the things that you do and don't have to do in our last series. And John was saying, look, the law came through Moses. Grace comes through Jesus. So all of this points to John focusing on Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Christ. And you're probably wondering what all of that has to do with the fig tree. Now, the fig tree was actually a symbol of messianic teaching. See, at the time of Jesus, uh, and we're going we're gonna to get there in a, a few, but Micah 4.4 says, Each will sit under his own grapevine or under his own fig tree without any fear. The Lord of heaven's army has decreed it. Zechariah 3.10 says, In that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, everyone will invite his friends to fellowship under his vine and under his fig tree. The fig tree was seen as a, a symbol of prosperity. That when Christ rules and reigns in the millennial kingdom, that we will be able to sit in peace under shade. And the fig tree is one of the largest trees that, you know, grows and has lots of shade. And so that was a symbol of prosperity, of the Messiah coming. And there's this story of a rabbi. Now, I'm not really sure which rabbi. It's either Rabbi Haya the Great or Shimon Bel-Halafta or Akiva and his students. But they were discussing the book of Ecclesiastes. And as they were discussing this book, they were sitting under a fig tree. And they were talking about when God knows it's time to take a man. Right, it's, time, it's your time. It's time to go. And as they were sitting there, they would, they would go out very early in the morning. It was the cool of the day, and they would sit under the fig tree. And the farmer would come out every morning, really early in the morning. And the rabbi felt really bad. He talks to his students one afternoon. He's like, maybe we shouldn't go back. I think the farmer thinks that we're stealing his figs. Maybe we should go somewhere else. And so they do. The next morning, they go somewhere else. And sure enough, who shows up at their meeting? The farmer. <laughs> he's like, guys, where'd you go? And the rabbi's like, I'm really sorry. I didn't want you to think we were stealing your figs. And so you had to be up super early to come watch us under your fig tree. So you didn't think we were stealing your figs. And the farmer goes, that's not it at all. I enjoyed listening to hear you speak, but I get up before the sun because I know that when the sun strikes the figs, the worms will infest the figs and they become rotten and must fall. And so the rabbi said, the owner of a fig tree knows how well the time when it is appropriate to harvest his fig tree, and he harvests it. So too the Holy One, blessed be he, knows when the time of the righteous person arrives, and he takes them. So it's this idea that uh, God knows the time of a man better than you know, the, uh, the farmer who knows his own fig trees. But they would sit and teach under these fig trees, And they weren't just teaching the Torah, they were teaching the Torah looking towards the Messiah. That was the point of the teaching, was we are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so we're going to step under the fig tree for a few minutes and discuss the Messiah. I hope you're all ready because that was my intro. So we're going to talk about three elements of faith. If you guys remember the last time I spoke, I talked about what does it mean to have faith? Now, there's actually three words that describe faith. We get them from 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And so we too constantly thank God that when you received God's message from us, that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human message, but as it truly is God's message, which as it work among you who believe. There are three things that happen in this verse. The first one is called notitia. Everybody say notitia. It's notice or acquaintance, right? It's the basics of hearing the gospel. You have been given the gospel. I have spoken the gospel to you. You have heard. You understand, right? You may agree, you may not agree, but, but you get the idea of the gospel. That is notitia. The second is a census. Everybody say a census. Right? this is I agree with. I have assented to, I approve, I find it true. But we have a problem here because a lot of times that's where faith stops. I've I've heard the gospel, I, I agree that it's true, but then nothing happens. See, even the demons have heard and agree. There is a difference between faith and agreement. The third element is fiducia. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It continues on in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and thus has righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and thus has salvation. Think about that for a second. We confess with our mouth. We agree. We're saying, yep, I agree but it requires belief in our heart. At this time in the ancient world, the heart was considered the seat where everything in the body happened. It was where you made agreements, right? The heart was essentially what we would think of as the brain. So when you think of the heart, they're saying with all of your being, you actually begin to have righteousness. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe and thus have righteousness... By believing in your heart, this causes a change in action. Righteousness is right living, it is right action. You cannot be sinning. You cannot be doing bad things and be doing righteous things. They don't work together like that. It's one or the other. It either is righteous or it isn't righteous. And so, what we see here is that to understand faith, you have to have all three you have to hear the message, you have to accept it as true. And then you have to have faith. That third word is fiducia. Trust, faith, confidence, credit, reliance. I actually rely on the word of God to get me through the day. It guides my actions. And John is going to show this off so well in the last half of chapter one. So verse 35, we're done with the poem. Right? John has has successfully announced the coming of the Messiah and combated some heresy. And now he's going to start talking about the calling of the disciples. So as I read through this, I want you to think about where are the individual aspects of faith? Where did they hear? Where did they accept? And then where did they have righteous action? Where did they have faith? So again, the next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples. Gazing at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Jesus turned around and saw them following and said to them, What do you want? So they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus answered, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. That was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Just here, where do we see the three elements of faith? They heard John say, look, the Lamb of God. They agreed. They were like, yes, this is the Lamb of God. I understand. I agree with what you're saying. Was that enough? Was that where they ended? No. They got up and they left everything behind and they followed after Jesus. And they said, teacher, are, are you the teacher? And he says, come and you will see. Follow me. So they're hearing, they're accepting, and then they're doing. This is what defined all of the coming, following of the disciples. Verse 40, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of those two disciples who heard what John said and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, which told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. It's one of my favorite names in the Bible. Peter in the Greek is Petros, which means rock. Jesus was saying, Rocky. (laughs) But it's also a foretelling, because later... Jesus comes back and says, you are Petros. You are the rock on which I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter is such a cool person. And this was his calling. What had happened? Someone said, I have found the Messiah. Peter agreed and then followed. The next day, Jesus wanted to set out for Galilee. So he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets and also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, Come and see. What do we see? Philip had heard from his town members, We have found the Messiah. So Philip, heard, accepted, followed, goes and gets his buddy. Hey, we have found the Messiah. What does his buddy do? He hears, he accepts, and he follows. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and exclaimed, look, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, how do you know me? Jesus replied, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said to him, because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He continued, I tell all of you the solemn truth. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. See, the book of John follows some patterns. One of which is he really likes the number seven. For those of you that follow biblical numerology, the number seven is the number of God, the number of completion. And here in this first chapter, Jesus is given seven names. We're going to go through these names, but I want you to, as we read through these, I want you to think about, I want you to hear, I want you to accept But ideally, I want you to change your actions. The first one we see is Rabbi. John 1, verse 38, Jesus turned around and saw them following and said, What do you want? So they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? Right. These were not just saying, it's another teacher I'm going to go follow. These were men who were saying, you are the great teacher teacher of Israel. We hear this later from uh, Nathaniel, who says, in the way that Moses brought the law, Jesus has come to bring grace and to fulfill. In the way that Moses was a teacher, so too is Jesus the great teacher. The second one is Lamb of God, John 1 verses 29 through 31. On the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We sometimes in this world have Christianese, right? We have words that we all speak that we kind of all know what they mean, but it's not necessarily words that other people outside of the church would get, right? Um, I'm reminded of like the Midwest, uh, oh, Lord, bless your heart. Right? But we have words that we use, right? I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Right? I am saved. I'm blessed. But to people that don't know who Jesus is, they haven't studied the Bible, they haven't read his word, they haven't heard, what is the Lamb of God? See, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world is the Lamb who will die to take on the sins of the world. We first see this in the Passover sacrifice where the lamb is slaughtered and the blood is painted over the doorposts and the lintels, so that the angel of death will pass over those houses. In the same way, God's judgment will pass over those of us who are painted with the blood of the lamb. But also the lamb was sacrificed and the sins of the nation were laid upon him at the day of atonement. And Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. That takes away not just the sins of a nation for a time, but of all mankind for all eternity. This action allows all mankind to be reunited with God in heaven. But it leads us to the next name, Son of Man. Jesus was not just fully God. He himself says, because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? He continued, I tell all of you the solemn truth. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus was fully man. He endured everything that we endure. It was through his suffering that, as a man, he was able to take on our sins as the Lamb of God and bring us redemption. If he was fully God but not fully man, then he could not die. He could not fulfill his job as the Lamb of God. But Jesus himself said, I am the Son of Man. This next one hits a little close to home. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets also wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replied, come and see. Nazareth, for those of you that don't know, was despised as a town. It was a, a small town outside of Jerusalem. It was on the border. It's kind of like Smelterville have you ever had anybody say, can anything good come out of Smelterville? Like, this is the area of the town that we're from. But think about what this man is saying, right? He is still hearing, accepting, and believing, walking out that faith. Because although Jesus is from Nazareth, Jesus then speaks into his life. We have this idea that that the Messiah will come from, I don't know, Washington, D.C. Or, or, um, or Europe. But imagine if someone walked up to you today and said, Jesus has come back. He came from Mullen. <laughs> I think there would be a little skepticism. I think, I, you know, I don't know. I think my response would be similar to Nathaniel's. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Mullen? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But very seriously, Jesus of Nazareth, it says in Isaiah 53.3 that he was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. Think about that. This was prophecy describing who Jesus would be, who their Messiah would be, and what was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't he insignificant? Really? Nazareth? But this points to the Messiah. That's who Jesus was, and that's the next name. John 1.41 says, He found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. In modern English, it would be translated as the chosen or anointed one. The Jews would pray for their Messiah. Some still do. They prayed for deliverance. They prayed that their Messiah would come and save them and deliver them. But at the time, they were praying for deliverance from the Romans. And before that, from the Persians and the Greeks and, and every other people that had oppressed them. But Jesus, their Messiah, did not come to deliver them from the hand of man rather from the hand of sin and death. Jesus came to be the Messiah to all mankind from death for all eternity. No longer do we have to fight against Satan, which means the opponent, the opposer. But we have a Messiah, a Savior, who has defeated him. And this leads us to our last two names. Because Nathanael hears the call and shows up. And his response is twofold. Surely you are the king of Israel and you are the son of God. Now, that sounds cool. I feel like we can all agree that Jesus is the king of Israel and the son of God. We would affirm that, right? What we don't understand is that at this point in history, for Nathanael to openly tell a man under Roman occupation, you are the king of Israel, was a death sentence. He is acknowledging that Jesus is number one, the king of Israel. Nathanael is an Israelite. He's acknowledging that you are my king. You are the one in whom I will get my instruction from. You're going to call to me and I will follow you. I will obey you. You are my king. I don't care if I get killed for recognizing you because you are the king of the Jews. You are the king of all Israel. And he also acknowledges you are the son of God. You are truly God come down to earth, you are the Messiah. See, this is where I got the idea for under the fig tree is Nathanael gets responded to by Jesus and and he says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now, there's some commentaries that talk about how, uh, especially at the time of Jesus, because the fig tree was seen as a messianic place, that the devout Jews would go and pray underneath the fig tree for the coming of the Messiah, so it's very likely that when he was found under the fig tree, when Philip came and said, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, that, that Nathaniel had been praying under the fig tree for the Messiah. Right? If you weren't looking for someone, would you be excited when they came over? Right? Like I I think about um, you know, when, when Donald Trump came to Spokane a few years ago, man, people were looking for him. And they were excited to go. Man, crowds of people. But if I were to hear, like, oh, Jordan Peterson's in town. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. I like him. He's a, he's a good guy. I listen to his commentary, sure. But if I didn't know he was coming, if I wasn't expecting his arrival, I would not rush out to greet him. Nathaniel's response is, the Messiah, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. He goes from prayer to faith in the blink of an eye. This wouldn't have been the most exciting news to someone who hadn't been looking for the Messiah. But Nathaniel was expecting the Christ. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. And I'm going to put this last slide up. And I want you guys to think about everything I'm about to say. The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the king and religious teacher, the high priest of Israel. He is the fully divine son of God who died for the sins of the world. Those are the seven names that Jesus is given in the first chapter of the book of John. Jesus from Nazareth, Messiah, king, teacher, High priest, divine son of God, lamb, and he is the Messiah. I tell you these things so that you will understand them. That is notitia. I tell you these things so that you will agree. That is a census. But church, it is not enough to hear and agree. We have to have faith. That is fiducia. That is the reliance on the word of God to walk out and be different. I don't know how many times I even struggle with this, where I hear the word of God and I hear him speaking into my life. I want to be like the disciples. I want to follow in the way that he would have me lead. And yet, suddenly I find myself yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, sure, I'm I'm a Christian. Yep, I believe, I follow God. Yep, no problem. But my actions don't match my words. I, I follow Jesus. I say, yes, I agree. Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet I don't allow those righteous actions to begin in my life. But it is not enough that we merely hear We have to do. The disciples who were called by Christ heard his words. They said Messiah, Rabbi, King. But then they just stayed. No. They laid down everything that they had. They set aside the things of the world. Imagine the followers of John. You have been a disciple of a rabbi. You have sat at his feet. You have have let his dust wash over you as you walk down these trails between cities. You have sat with him as he has been ridiculed by Jews and by Gentiles. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And your response is, I'm leaving. To have that level of faith, to walk a different path, to say, the way that I have been doing it is not good enough. I can follow the Messiah. I can have the king in my life. That's a possibility. Church, it's time for us to wake up to our duty. We need to be Nathaniel praying for the return of the Messiah underneath the fig tree. Here is the call. The Messiah has come. He has told us what we are to do. We are to walk out those doors. We are to be His light. We are to be His hands and His feet. We are to go unto all of the nations, teaching them, instructing them to obey the things that He has commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is not enough that we come to church and listen to a message on a Sunday, that we hear some fantastic worship, that we sing some songs. Jesus Christ changes lives. It is not enough that we agree that Jesus is God. We have to live that Jesus is God. We're going to go into a time of worship this morning. And then we're going to take communion. And I want you guys to seriously look at your lives. To think about where you stand. Are you a person that has agreed? You've heard the message. You said, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And that's it. Is there an area in your life where God says, I am king. I want control. And you're saying, no, God, I've got that. (laughs) You're you're king of Israel, not, not that part of my life. Jesus is calling for a renewal in his church. He is calling for a return to the faith that those disciples had where they will say, I will leave everything. I will change my name because you call me to a higher standard. I believe in my heart and will walk out righteousness. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you gave us the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God, I thank you that you have provided the Messiah. God, forgive me for all of the times where I forget that. Where I allow my own fear and struggles to overcome who he is. But God, I pray that as we go forward today, God, as we walk out those doors, that you will remind us The purpose of the book of John is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came to save. God, help me to live differently every single day because of who Jesus is. God, help me to live in such a way that when people see me, they see him. God, you are my king. You are my high priest and my teacher. Help me to change my life so I can be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.